Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matt. Hello, Stuart. This Hi. is this is the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert. Oh, yes, that one. It's that one. Yes, it's the, that one. The one that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, and you're my co-host, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, the one and only. But no, Paul Williams. Oh, don't well. mention him. <laughs> Paul was fired, and uh, you know, we're moving on. Colburn's going to be on next time. We're going to have Colburn <laughs> on next. Stuart, did you have some listener feedback? Uh, I sure did. In fact, I put this one in there because I thought it was hilarious. It <laughs> okay. says, hello, curbsiders. I wanted to thank you for being instrumental in landing a diagnosis in not just one, but two cases of dress in my internal medicine residency department this month. Both patients have been evaluated in outside systems without a proper diagnosis. And after hearing the random clinical pearls number two episode, some lowly interns, I suspect that's what, he's one of them, <laughs> put together the pieces, stop the offending agents, and both patients are improving significantly. This awesome way of dispersing medical information is entertaining and effective. Keep the episodes coming. Thank you, Kelsey. PGY1. Wow. I am, uh, we, we saved two lives, potentially, Stuart. Yeah, I... Yeah, I think actually you did. I don't. I don't think I was on that episode. I don't recall yeah. that I was actually. And to be honest, our guest saved two lives, but we provided a yeah. forum for him to become a hero. <laughs> Absolutely, but it does kind of highlight a point, and we put this on the last uh, episode in response to this feedback because because it is important to, to for us to give a nice disclaimer. So here's your disclaimer. It's the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, educational, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast for those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity aside from the prestigious Cash Life Memorial Hospital and its, and its affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any, <laughs> and which there are not presently. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your homework and let us know when we're wrong. And today is part one of a two-part series on what we're calling Healthcare Policy for Beginners or Healthcare Policy for Millennials, assuming that most millennials are beginners at health policy, although ironically, our guest, Dr. Fatima Sayed, is not such a beginner, and she does identify as a millennial. She is an endocrinology fellow in Philadelphia. She went to VCU for both medical school and undergrad, where she studied biology. She earned her master's in comparative social policy from the University of Oxford prior to medical school, and she currently serves as the chair of the Council of Resident and Fellow Members for the American College of Physicians. We've asked Fatima to come on the show to speak with us a little bit about how she got involved, how she got such an important role in the ACP at such a young age, and a little bit about the resources she uses and some of her thoughts on the Affordable Care Act, uh, quality measures, and just really, it's a nice intro to healthcare policy. I hope you found it as helpful as we did. This is Dr. Matthew Frank Watto here with Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. That's me again. And we have a great guest. Her name is Dr. Fatima Syed. I, I messed up the pronunciation, I'm sure, but uh, I, I did my best. I'm sorry, Fatima. Sayed. You got it. You did just fine. Stuart, Stuart can say it. Okay. And for, <laughs> and yeah, and for the audience, uh, we, we've been asking all our guests at this point uh, if we can just kind of go more informal using first names. It also helps me with the name blindness thing. So thank you, Fatima, for, for uh, bearing with me on that. Now, I always like to start off asking guests, if you had to use a one-liner to describe yourself, what would that sound like? 
Um, sure. So I would say that I'm a 30-year-old female, uh, daughter of Pakistani immigrants, uh, Virginia native, uh, with an uh, endocrine fellow in Philadelphia with an interest in advocacy and diabetes. Hmm. A millennial. And a millennial, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we decided on a recent show that we like millennials. Technically, we could call ourselves millennials, but we're really not sure. But I do I, like I, I, millennial learners. Stuart, I think it. of myself as an ex-millennial. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like a... Oh, never mind. I'm, I'm not going to jump yeah, into I any think, political I, puns. Stuart, I think what Shreya said is, oh, I think once you become an attending, you're no longer a millennial, which I kind of like. It's, yeah, that's not bad. I like it. <laughs> once you start judging other millennials, then you although, a millennial. <laughs> although the first day I pulled out my cell phone on rounds and we asked a question on Twitter as part of rounds, I knew I was a millennial. Yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty good. I think I'm going to start. I think actually I'm going to encourage other attendings that listen to the show to try to uh, up your street cred with millennials by doing innovative things on rounds or when with learning and teaching. I think that's a great move. So I'm throwing the challenge out there. Actually, I think the the learners kind of thought I was crazy because one of my uh, I think my my intern was like 42 years old. (laughs) Well, that happens where you work. There's a lot of older Cashlack has has a lot of older learners. That's won't right. go hey, into any more detail. Time out real quick. Can you hear my cat in the background? No, and I'm going to keep that in. All right. <laughs> Fatima, uh, can you recommend a book that every physician should read? And if that's too difficult of a question, just a book that you think was useful. So I think that the best physicians I've ever met have been really well-rounded people with really broad outlooks. Um, so I, I thought about this question and... The book that I read in high school that I come back to a lot and read almost every year or so is Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Um, The reason is because it really uh, helps people, I think, sort of understand what it feels to be unseen and marginalized. And I think that's an important group of people to for for us who provide health care to understand that people feel really marginalized. And there's a very rich history in the U.S., but also a history that's marginalized people. And so I refer to that book a lot, um, especially in the last last year of, of, of political change. So I, w- I would definitely give that book a read with a different mm. lens from from when you might have read it in high school. Mm. Not to be confused with The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells, which is about a scientist who turns himself invisible and terrorizes a village. (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. Or Invisible Dad, which is a Bill Cosby movie from the 80s, which if you've seen it, it's it's pretty bad. Anyway, I don't know if I count as millennial, but I remember that movie. (laughs) Okay, Stuart, did did you want to ask any further questions before we move into the main topic? Um, you know, the the one thing that that I really did want to know about is, given your 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 position where you are with ACP and your role and working in policy, how did you how did you kind of find yourself in that role? What did you do? What kind of things could you tell young up and coming physicians about um, that uh, might spur their interest? Absolutely. So I think what ACP has provided me is a medical home where there are people who think like me and care about the same issues as me but still have a lot of diversity of ideas. And ACP was that home for me. I became involved with ACP in residency. I actually wasn't involved in medical school. And the way I became involved was through mentorship. I had a friend who was on the council 
of resident and fellow members who sort of told me to look into ACP and see if it was an organization I wanted to get involved with. And the chair of medicine where I did residency and I'm now a fellow really encouraged me to get involved. Um, and that's how I got involved with the council of resident and fellow members. And so that sort of being involved in the council then led me to be involved with ACP at a local level and a national level. Uh, I think my second year on the council, I got to sit on the health and public policy committee. I've gotten to take on a leadership role as chair of the council, resident and fellow members this year. And it's really shown me that there's a voice that represents us and represents our patients really well. And it really represents my ideas and how I think about medicine. So that's, that was really, really important to me. And it was especially nice because I think I, I sometimes felt a little bit lonely when I was in medical school where everyone's focusing on studying and the science of everything, which I was interested in as well. But I also had a little bit of a background in policy and a, an interest in where healthcare was was going to be. And I thought that I might be the only one that cared about that. And then I realized as I was in medical school and especially in residency and getting involved with ACP that a lot of physicians care about that, and I would say most do. So I think ACP's provided me with a medical home, and I highly recommend to seek out good mentors and find that wherever it is for you. Find some place that there's people who, a community of people who can rally with you and 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 you work together. I want to jump to what you started, what you were doing, or what you were reading that allowed you to have such a strong voice among this Council of Residents and Fellows. Yes, absolutely. So what I would say is that I don't recommend reading things to fit into a perspective that you might already have, Mm. because you're just feeding your own perspective that way and not really understanding the real issue. And to me, I liken it to if you, the, the, the bias that exists, if someone tells you that a patient has X diagnosis in the ER and you ignore everything else that they could have and miss something really important later in their admission. So, so that's how, that's how I liken that. So what I would recommend is I started reading in medical school, sort of having, um, somewhat of a background in, in, in broad public policy and broad health policy, but wanting to learn, delve a little bit deeper, deeper, I recommend reading health affairs I think health affairs is something that if you are starting to become interested in the the the, the policy level issues of how healthcare exists, I think health affairs is a really good journal for that. And if you just get sort of the email posts and read some headlines, I think you'll learn a lot as well. From also, I, I definitely recommend sort of objective organizations like Kaiser Family Foundation just to get to know facts related to healthcare. It's not, it's, I don't know how it's related to Kaiser Permanente. It's not, it's, I I think it only shares a name, but Kaiser Family Foundation is a very, very objective think tank that provides information that is non-biased. And I'd also go lean back on your medical home. For me, that's the American College of Physicians. And I think they uh, provide a lot of help in advocacy and in understanding policy issues as well. So if you go on their website and just click on advocacy, it kind of divides it up between the ACA, Medicare, Medicaid, physician workforce issues, and you can kind of read topic by topic. And honestly, Twitter, I think, is awesome. I am not that, that I haven't been on Twitter for very long, probably 
I, I started when I was elected vice chair of the council, so maybe two years. And I follow the right people, I would say. So Bob Doherty, I make a plug for him. He's awesome. And he has a really great uh, Twitter feed where you learn a lot that's specifically related to internists. And then following people on Twitter, like Andy Slavitt, um, gives you a lot of different perspective as well. So I would say that if you tailor your Twitter for whatever subject you want to learn about, you can actually learn right. a lot. But if you're following like Kanye West, you might not learn as much. <laughs> <laughs> what not to do? Yes, we yeah. had we had uh, our our chief of nephrology, Dr. Joel Topf, who is very popular on our show. He he kind of taught us how he uses Twitter, which is he has this whole like network of people that he asks questions to who are very active. And I imagine you could create the same type of network around health policy. And it sounds like maybe you're in the works of doing that, or at least following people who have done that. And I, I wanted absolutely to, wanted to ask just Bob Doherty. How do you spell the the last name there, just so people can it's, can find him? Sure, it's D O H E R T Y. Okay. And, and the other thing I'd recommend, and we started this in my program a little bit as well, is um, if you just get a group of people together and just choose a article to read a week and discuss it, and just spend. 15 minutes when you have a lunch break to discuss it, it goes a long way and you kind of mm -hmm. have that sort of think tank within your own institution right. and friends to talk about. And I think, you know, this is a great starting point for this episode. Stuart and I, I mean, uh, part of the educational mission of the show, like we want our, our audience and ourselves to be kind of physicians, uh, teachers and leaders. And we want to, we need to know about this kind of stuff because if, if we're not making sure that, healthcare healthcare is is uh not going down the drain then mm -hmm. even no matter how much knowledge we have about disease processes and treatments it's not going to make a difference and i know stewart's very involved uh at his job i'm i'm sort of uh aspiring to that but right mm -hmm. now i'm not i'm not super involved in any of this so this is this is all really helpful to get these these resources fatima i i want to bring this to the affordable care act which mm -hmm was enacted in 2010, mostly called Obamacare by people. Can you talk a little bit about what this has done uh, to healthcare and, and what this, for us as physicians seeing patients, how has this changed things for us? And let's just start with that and then I'll ask follow-up questions. Sure. So I, I, I view the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, or ACA is generally what I like to call it, as, again, another step in the evolution of an evolving healthcare system. And the concepts in the Affordable Care Act are not new. They've probably been in discussion since at least the Nixon era and the Clinton era, and then Obama was able to get it passed. And it's so therefore, it's not just conceptually a Democratic or a Republican bill either. So I think some a, a few really important things happened. One that affected me when I was in medical school is I went one year where I had to pay insurance out of pocket because mm -hmm. I aged out of my parents' insurance. And then they increased it to if you you could stay on your parents' insurance till age 26. So personally, for myself and my medical school colleagues up until age 26, that was awesome right. to be able to save that money. Um, I think another huge thing it did for our patients that they were not excluded from getting health insurance and therefore health access because they had pre-existing conditions, with, which is huge as well. And then I think the concept of the individual mandate, the individual mandate, people probably have heard that word thrown around a lot. But what that means basically was that individuals who don't have coverage, uh, insurance coverage, would have to pay a tax penalty. And it's not just the penalty or the amount that of the penalty that matters to me, 
But I think it's the concept that if you don't have health coverage, then you will be penalized. Therefore, we are going to have a cultural shift in how we view healthcare, where same concept as the government has a responsibility to its citizens, its citizens have a responsibility to themselves. When you have a car, you get car insurance. When you need health access, which you need as a human being, you get you have health insurance. So I think it created a cultural shift as well. And you did see that in your patients. Patients we're talking about wanting to get health insurance as well. And it, it opened doors for patients to see physicians. I think it is not without its challenges and it's not without its areas for improvement by any means. One thing I did see is that patients on certain insurance companies may no longer see some of their providers who may or may not take those insurance companies. So I think there was some sort of issues with that initially perhaps. Uh, but those are those are some of the the, the really important things that happen, I'd say. And yeah, right. So you're you're saying that one of the ways that it might have affected us is the whole. I think Obama got himself in a little bit of trouble by saying that you could keep your doctor, but that ended up not necessarily being true for certain people if their if their plan changed. Is that is that true? Or I think that's probably true to some extent, and I maybe saw a little bit of that, but I think it's not to the extent that people people say, and it doesn't necessarily overall big picture effect outcomes, quote unquote, for patients, but obviously patients should should be able to see the doctors that they want to see. Um, and I think the other challenge in the U.S. is that we are a very specialty-driven medical system, and we also don't have, compared to other countries, we're kind of on the lower end of the amount of providers that we need. And compared to other countries, we're also a very heterogeneous society with very complex needs. So I think that there were, are definitely growing pains with ACA, which we know about, but it's a step in the evolution and it can evolve further to be even better. As a provider, I, I haven't really, I haven't noticed the effects that much. And that's probably why I'm, I'm asking this question because mm-hmm. I've been practicing mm-hmm. for a while now. I think that there, there are some big changes coming or, or were enacted. I think macro was one of them. Do you think that's important for the average physician or listener of our show to know about? We kind of have students all the way up through attending physicians who listen. I think it is because I think it sort of conceptually affects our patients. And if we don't fully understand the nuances of what it means, I think it's important for us to know who represents us and what the organizations that represent us and and lobby for us, how they feel about it, and if they're representing our views on sort of the bigger picture perspective. So there was was a big, in ACP, there was lots of debate about MACRA and MIPS. And I think I was an intern when I was on the quality committee and the policy committee at ACP and and was very confused. But (laughs) for practicing physicians, I think it, it actually is very relevant. And so it's really important to, if you may not know the nuances, at least have an organization that represents you and has the patient's you know best interest in mind first do no harm and has the best patient's perspective in mind and to me i think acp does a really good job and is generally in, in agreement with most other organizations as well and what what would well i think we need to define macra and mip you said macra and mips right yeah Can you define those for the audience absolutely um so MACRA is the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act of 2015. And and, and what MIPS is, it's merit-based incentive payment systems. So what that really affects is basically how practices 
get payments for um, uh, for providing medical care. So it, it includes like uh, we've all probably heard about uh, patient-centered medical homes and accountable care organizations and how funding is structured. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, a few weeks ago in our division, we had someone who was in administration in charge of accountable care organizations and um, come in to see us and talk about why it was so important for our providers to understand what how the payment models were in our health system, how they were organized. And I can just saw all the physicians in the room's eyes glossed over and they're <laughs> like, I just want to go back to seeing my patients. And really what it came down to was them telling us in order for you to provide the care that you do to your patients and to be reimbursed for it, especially as internists, where a lot of our fields are based on thinking, is to be able to tell the people who who, co who tell the people, tell Medicare that who pays you how sick your patients are. So you, so they know that your patients are very complex and that you have a lot to deal with with your patients. So um, uh, that sort of, I think, really clicked with people. Okay, it doesn't really matter to me how the funding models exist, but I know that as a provider, I just need to be able to explain how my patients are um, and what's going on with them and, and be able to tell that in a very clear way. And well, what's the clear way that patients have to, or providers have to do that through coding and billing? And so that makes hospitals and practices really invest in that part of providing medical care. So I think that's how it's relevant to a physician to know basically like this is how you get paid and this is how your health system is structured. And it's really important for you to explain how your patients are doing. So, so basically as physicians, now, I mean, the MACRA and MIPS, the, the way that I had kind of understood it is that mm -hmm. it's, it's moving us towards more the incentive, like p you're paying for quality, not, not fee-based system where you get paid more for doing more. You get, you're getting paid now for quality. They're trying to kind of shift our, our efforts towards getting people healthier, providing better care rather than, than making money. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think it's sort of incentivizing it's incentivizing having the best outcomes for your patients, but it's you're if you're not telling if you're not telling CMS that your patients are sicker than they are, then you could also be disincentivized. Right. Yeah. So it, it's really a call for physicians to be able to code and bill better, um, mm -hmm. and it's also important that you're going to be measured based on your outcomes. So the goal is that we're all working towards the same goal of having healthier patients. It's probably it's it's it, it's complex, but I think that's sort of the the best way to sort of neatly explain how how it works. So my understanding of macro, please correct me if I'm wrong, is is that if you're not meeting certain benchmarks, certain uh, goals, that they could potentially reduce payments. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. yes, that's correct. So it's it's not necessarily to increase your payment. You know, you're not going to get rich off a of macro, but you could get poor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. absolutely. And so that's why it's really important for physicians to <laughs> understand how it works right. to some extent. What are your thoughts about um, and this? I'm not good at segueing. I think we've established this already. <laughs> what, what are your just kind of overarching thoughts on single payer healthcare and Obamacare in general? Yes. Yeah, so I studied in my master's degree programs uh, a program rather comparing the wealthiest nations and how they structure their healthcare against each other. So my degree was in comparative social policy, and every other country had essentially a version of nationalized healthcare, except for the US, which is very fragmented. And I think a lot of the challenges that we face are very fragmented as well. And it's not to say that the US doesn't have a form of national healthcare. It does. Medicare, Medicaid, 
the veteran systems, those are all technically nationalized public forms of healthcare, right? And so my viewpoint is that healthcare is an evolution and the impetus for healthcare changes maybe some revolutionary concept, but the change itself is very gradual. And that's what every other country has had too. So for me, I think that living through healthcare, both as a consumer of healthcare and as a provider of healthcare as a physician, it's hard and we go through growing pains as things are in transition. But to me, it's sort of what's the end goal. And I think really what it comes down to is, do you view healthcare as a social right or not? And if you view it as a social right, then eventually probably some form where you can guarantee healthcare access and a fair financial uh, fair financial uh, uh, costs of healthcare, then you're probably headed towards some sort of nationalized system. So I don't know that we're ever going to get there. I don't know that we're ever that we're going to get there ever, or that we're even close to getting there yet. But I think the Affordable Care Act provided a really important sort of philosophical question and answer, which is that healthcare is something that you need, and therefore, if you don't have insurance to access healthcare, you're going to get you're going to pay a penalty for it. So it's sort of creating a cultural shift, and we see that. I think the the we've been talking about an, uh, a concept of national healthcare. This is not a new concept probably been just thinking about this since Teddy Roosevelt's era. So it's been over a hundred years. And Fatima, I wanted to break in because I I think keeping with the theme of the show, we always, we need to start basic. So I just want to make sure Stuart, Stuart threw out some terms there. So you have, I I think what you're talking about, universal healthcare just means everybody has access to affordable healthcare by some means, which is sort of where the Affordable Care Act is kind of was was sort of trying to move us in a you know steer the ship that way single payer would be uh, there there's i guess there's many ways i guess it could be enacted but medicare sort of for all is is one of the things i think that bernie sanders is now calling this where basically you know everyone would have medicare it would gradually move everyone to medicare over 4 or 5 years something like that just to define terms for the audience so universal health care doesn't necessarily mean single payer but it, it it it's it's these are just different ways of getting people to to have healthcare because right now we have this mix of public and private and it's kind of messy or <laughs> very messy. Yeah, I would I was just gonna say universal healthcare is basically a healthcare system provides healthcare and financial protection, and so I, we are probably talking about some sort of nationalized healthcare system. How that is executed and what system. The specifics of that, I think, can vary, uh, but universal health care means that you're protecting the right of health care for citizens. Mm-hmm. Now, the one of the things that we wanted to sort of get into here, the, the you, you mentioned that you had studied kind of how health care is delivered in the, the 18 wealthiest nations uh, during your master's program. The U.S. kind of is famously one of the most expensive or the most mm-hmm. expensive, but on quality measures, we're saying we're not we're not doing as good a job. Can you talk a little bit about how they're measuring the quality there? Is it, do you think that's that's a true statement? Yeah, so I think of quality measures as is as different different sort of units. So outcomes are is objective data that you can't really mess with. 
So life expectancy, for example, is an objective marker. And then there's quality outcomes from the perspective of outcomes in general for the population and as specific as patient perception of quality. And so it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty varied, I would say. But in terms of objective measures like life expectancy, I think according to Kaiser, the average life expectancy is, is in industrialized nations is 82 and in the United States it's 79. So then you have to ask yourself why, why are Americans not living longer? Is it that there's pockets of populations of patients? And I go back to my reference of invisible man who are either marginalized or do not have access to healthcare and, or don't have safety and is and are dying younger and is that mm. what's keeping our numbers down or is it that we have preventable illnesses or chronic illnesses that are making us sicker earlier in life compared to other countries okay. so i think that's where that measures in and then the quality the quality measurements can be as specific to what you know we all get scored on of how our patients perceive us as physicians and as institutions right and and, and some may argue that that's the natural outgrowth of a country that that um, puts priority and emphasis on autonomy versus paternalism. Because if you have the autonomy to make a decision, say, hey, I'm not going to use my my dollars to purchase health care, then essentially that's going to increase the risk pool or those are going to be at risk for preventable diseases. And so when you look at some of the quality measures that I've seen that compares, say, uh, uninsured populations in the United States versus uninsured populations in the UK and looks at disparities and outcomes, of course, that's going to suggest that there's increased um, negative outcomes in the United States because we have a larger uninsured pool versus the UK. If you immigrate to the UK, it's not going to take long before you, you're going to be insured by the national healthcare systems. Isn't that, is that not correct? I, I sort of take a different perspective, though. I think in the, in the UK, the playing field is at least level, right? So even I, when I studied there right. as a student visa, I had access to the NHS. So I could go to the doctor if I needed to. And so I think at least the playing field is level. Whereas mm. I think pre-ACA and even after to a large extent as well, the playing field is not level where not everyone has the same healthcare access, uh, at least sort of on a, on a, on a lower tier level even. Whereas in places where there are, are nationalized systems, there is at least a level playing field to start. And may, there may be tiers that grow later, and there are some countries right. that are tiered. But in the U.S., I think there are pockets of populations right. who simply can't get into the door of seeing a doctor. And I think that's the difference. Right. Yeah, and, and if you look at those populations, on the other hand, that can get into the door to see the doctor in the United States, I think you start to see more of a level, uh, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, of the word I'm looking for here, but essentially the, the outcomes are more equal. Yeah, I think that's that's probably fair, which is why I sort of go back to my, my comment about the life expectancy is maybe that there's just pockets of people we're not reaching. Right, and right. Maybe there's also, there's also sort of maybe not as much of an emphasis on chronic disease, although I think that's changing, and preventable things that mm -hmm. we can work on earlier. We're, we're, we're even, even in the UK, I think that they, they, they focused on that a little bit earlier. Like, for example, just let's take acute care coverage versus chronic care coverage. I think the UK NHS, to some extent, was working on potentially having more long-term care coverage or more changing their health system to understand that people have chronic illnesses. Whereas in the US, we're, we're getting there, and I think we're there to some extent, but we're really focused on acute medicine and acute care as well. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think we kind of need to just change our mindset to see that, you know, our population is living longer, is probably getting sicker and, you know, getting to getting their care earlier is probably, you know, saving us, quite frankly, money in the, in the, in the long term as well, preventing them from having worse medical outcomes. Yeah. Um, I, I want to know if you could speak to just a, a second about this is something that, that I hear oftentimes in, in news reports about the Commonwealth Fund performance ratings on healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, so frequently the United States is rated last. Could you just for one second uh, just kind of explain how those ratings are obtained? Yeah, I, I think for the most part, those are ra- those ratings are maintained on survey data. So the fact that they're maintained on serving data means that, you know, you may not be getting the, the most accurate perspective and not necessarily on objective data. Um, so I, I would say that that's possible why maybe based on survey da- data and perception, the U.S. Mm-hmm. is coming coming out with less quality, less, uh, less, less positive quality outcomes than in other countries. Right. You know, if I just got a bill in the mail that says I owe the hospital $10,000 because I have no health insurance, and then the next day I get this survey in the mail, I'm mm-hmm. probably going to want to respond to that survey and, and trash my healthcare system. <laughs> I want to try to take, I want to try to just summarize a little bit of what we talked about and, and start to wrap up here. So, Fatima, I'll be, I'll be asking you for your take home points. It, so, basically, we, we went through the affordable care. Well, first of all, we went through how you can get involved. We're recommending that you join a local organization, whether it's ACP or whatever organization you identify with, and and trying to get involved because there will be mentors there that you can learn from. We gave you some sources that you can read. We talked a little bit about what changes were made with the Affordable Care Act and what that meant for both physicians and patients. And then we were just kind of talking a little bit about MACRA and MIPS and the switch to sort of incentive-based physician reimbursement, which Stuart pointed out is not going to make us richer by providing better care, but it will prevent us from getting poorer by not providing better care. Did I say that right, hmm. Stuart? That, that, that's a positive spin on something I said very negatively. <laughs> We've made an effort here to make sense of things, and we are going to do some some future episodes on on health policy to try and explain this to ourselves and our listeners so that we can all get involved like like you are involved. So what would be your main take-home points for the audience? I think my, I mean, the audience of this podcast for the most part are internists. And I would just say that you view health policy through the lens of taking care of your patients and what's going to be in the best interest for your profession and for patients. So if you use that lens, try to understand things as objectively as possible, question things when you need to and look for objective sources and look for organizations that represent you. So American College of Physicians is that organization for me as an internist and, and, and an endocrine fellow as well. So I would say that's probably the most important thing. Sort of the last sort of big picture perspective is that it's we're gonna be okay. We need to take care of our patients. We have been arguing about how healthcare is going to work in the United States for a hundred plus years. So this is all part of the process and it's challenging going through it and having the growing pains of going through it. But if the goals of a healthy population and advocating for your patients is your number one goal, we're going to be okay. Well said. I I, I feel better now that you said everything's going to be okay. I think I needed that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Though. I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Awesome. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Appreciate it, guys. 
This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing sure you has. a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find Yummy. show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up for our mailing list and receive our weekly show notes, which nicely summarize the key clinical pearls from each episode. Mm-hmm. You can get that at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And finally, please send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can, t- you can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And wait, where's Paul? <laughs>